Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman coming to you from Los Angeles. And if you live in LA, you feel the presence of Kobe Bryant wherever you turn. I've seen so many beautiful murals pop up around the city. Kobe, his daughter Gianna, remembrances of the other seven people who died in a helicopter crash a little more than a week ago. That presence I'm talking about also flashes in front of you almost every time you get in a conversation. Caught me by surprise when I showed up to do this podcast with Scott Budnick, one of the producers of the movie Just Mercy. I was talking to Scott about how Kobe had reached out to me out of the blue to ask about my interviewing process. And Scott had a similar story about Kobe's curiosity. Check this out. Kobe reached out to Scott to find out about criminal justice reform. I was first like summoned down to his office a couple years ago where he wanted to talk about criminal justice reform. And we literally sat one-on-one and he probably asked a hundred questions. Just back to back to back to back to back to back to back. Just like want to knowledge, want to knowledge, want to understand. Tested me on things twisted me up on things, like really an incredible conversation. And then we did the same thing about filmmaking and met around filmmaking. Multiple times I would call him to come out to different events that we were doing. Never said no, never asked for a dollar. If it was to like help kids do anything, showed up 100% of the time, always of service, always wanting to help. Um, I asked him if he wanted to see Just Mercy uh, he took his daughter to see Just Mercy. We ran out of theater. They went alone. He was blown away by the film. He said, tell me exactly how to help. He ended up buying out a theater in L.A. for kids in Inglewood and showed up and spoke before the screening um, and had to dart off to his kids' basketball practice. Family was always his priority, um, but he would always take time to help. And he ended up buying out theaters for Just Mercy in Philly and Jersey for people to see his own money. Never asked for a dollar, always gave, fully selfless. It is a tragedy of epic proportions, but I mean, I'm moving forward in continuing his legacy to just be that and continue championing the causes that he cared about and to hugely scale my commitment to the work he was doing. I'm devastated and inspired at the same time. This podcast is about Scott's mission and how it flowed into the movie Just Mercy. If you haven't seen Just Mercy, please do. It stars Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, Brie Larson, and Karen Kendrick. I've seen the film twice. Maybe I'm going again. It's based on the true story of a young African-American lawyer named Brian Stevenson, who graduated from Harvard Law School in the mid-80s and ultimately moved to Alabama to give legal representation to inmates on death row, inmates who had no voice at all. Movie has many levels to it, but it focuses on the relationship between Stevenson and an inmate named Johnny D, who's been set up by law enforcement and wrongly convicted of murder. The movie is about their fight for justice. I don't want to spoil it for you, 
So I'll just leave it at that. In fact, I'd like my conversation with Scott to stand for itself as well, but you'll see some similarities in the transitions in Scott's life and Kobe's life. Scott had worked in film for years and produced the film Hangover, which I believe is the highest-grossing R-rated comedy ever. He was at the top of that game when he shifted his life into educating the public and making changes in our criminal justice system. I met Kobe at his transition point, just after he retired from playing in the National Basketball Association. And one of the first things I noticed when I sat down with Kobe was that he didn't have that hollowness that you might find in many athletes after they retire. Kobe had absolutely none of that. He was already completely focused on using curiosity and storytelling to help the leaders of the future reach their full potential. So my big question going into this conversation with Scott was, how does a man go from hangover to just mercy? The answer is relevant to all of us. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Elaine Chan for helping arrange this conversation. Elaine is a great example of how my life has been improved and inspired by this podcast. She reached out over email after listening, and we've had some wonderful conversations since. For about five years now, Elaine has been putting on theater and music workshops at youth and adult correctional facilities, and her passion for seeing the humanity in those behind bars will help anyone see the world differently. I've been so grateful for our conversations that I sent Elaine an entire sporty getup to works. And you know what she told me? That it's painful to put a pair of sporty sweatpants in the washing machine. Because when you put a pair of sporty sweatpants in the washing machine, you can't wear them. So you know what? We're going to send Elaine another pair of sporty sweatpants so she can roam in comfort even when her sporty are getting cleaned up. If you want to feel how comfortable a pair of sweatpants can be, go to sporty.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. And thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Scott Budnick for making everyone you touch more comfortable. Let's get straight to Scott Budnick. So basically, I'm looking at your Wikipedia page and uh, it is bare bones. Starts, uh, Scott Budnick is an American film producer whose work includes serving as one of the executive producers of The Hangover back in 2009, highest grossing R-rated comedy of all time. He's also noteworthy for his efforts as a volunteer in California state prisons in advocacy on behalf of prisoners. Awarded the 2012 California Governor's Volunteer of the Year for his efforts, founded the Anti-Recidivism Recidivism Coalition. Always I'm proud of you, Cal. I always you, most, most on that. They don't yeah. get that recidivism. Arc. Arc. 
simply. Okay. It's missing just mercy. You got to get this updated. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> okay. So big question. How do you go from the hangover to just mercy? I mean, there is a big leap there, but let's start it in the beginning. Just tell me where all this came from, because it obviously has love of film at the bottom of it. Absolutely. I came out to Los Angeles from Atlanta and got my first job after eating a lot of ramen soup and macaroni and cheese and not being able to pay my rent and finally got a job after about six months of looking. And uh, it was with Todd Phillips on his first narrative film, Road Trip. And I spent four years working with him in the business, ultimately spent 16 years with him. But four years in, I just found myself in the same restaurants, bars, clubs, having the same conversations, all in the bubble of Hollywood. And it just wasn't making me happy, plain and simple. I had come from Atlanta where my dad was a doctor and was always having me volunteer in the hospital and we're always a kind of be of service, be of service. And now I'm in this Hollywood bubble, like partying and having fun and going to nice meals and just like a little oblivious to what's going on right down the street. And a friend of mine invited me down to a juvenile hall in the San Fernando Valley on a Saturday morning. And I said, hmm, that's an interesting way to start the morning. Like, let's go check it out. He said, come be a guest speaker in a creative writing program. And so I walk into this juvenile hall and the first thing I see as I'm walking to the building where we're going to do the class is probably a kid who was nine years old, handcuffed and shackled, being escorted by an officer. And it was just one of the most startling visuals I've ever seen. He was nine a child. Years old. He was a child. He was a child. And I then get to the building where we're teaching this class, and it's the area of the juvenile hall that is all kids being tried as adults for serious crimes. And it's a little intimidating, and I walk in there, and it's in this fluorescent lit hallway, and they've set this folding table up. And we sit down at the table, and the, these kids file in, and turn to the kid that sits right down right next to me, and I said, how was your week? Are you doing okay in here? And he said, it was a really bad week. I just got sentenced to 300 years to life in prison. I said, what's your name? How old are you? How did this happen? His name was David. He was 15 years old when he committed his crime. His crime was standing next to a guy that shot the victim in the rear end. And for standing next to the guy, the victim was in and out of the hospital on a day, for standing next to him as an aider and a better, not touching the weapon, he got a 300 year to life sentence. And as we went around the table, every kid told a story of being a victim before joining a gang or victimizing somebody. It was foster care, so they had nobody. It was no fathers. It was physical abuse or sexual abuse. It was witnessing domestic violence. And it was in that moment where I realized that like, one, we're blessed. And if this was my child or your child, they would be out on bail, so they wouldn't be sitting in the juvenile hall fighting their case. They'd be home in bed with us dealing with this. And two, they would have the best lawyer on the planet. And for not touching a gun in that crime, they would probably get probation and not spend a day in prison. But because David had nobody, David was going to prison for 300 years to life. And every kid around that table was brown and black. And 99% of the kids that I've taught in that class and I teach that class every Saturday since 2004. Every kid 
is a, is a poor kid of color. And I just realized I can't live in this state, work in this city, be in a town where this is happening, where we have the ability and have this luxury of being in the film business where we can get the right people on the phone, where we can make a huge dent in this. So I just jumped in, started teaching that class, and I became kind of this guy that was known as like film producer, but also uh, in working in the juvenile justice system. One other quick story that I think is worth telling is in that same class was Adam, who looked like he was 11, but he was 16 and he was going to prison for six years for a robbery. And his hands were shaking. The writing topic was forgiveness. And he wrote this incredible paper with his mother ever forgive him. His hands were shaking. He said to me, when I get out, will you help me find a job? I said, absolutely. Here's my cell phone number. Call me. We stayed in touch the whole time. But when he got out, he called me. And I said, we're in pre-production on a movie called The Hangover. Come down. You'll be an intern. And he came down, told him to show up at 6 in the morning. He showed up at 5 in the morning. Out-hustled everybody. Attitude of gratitude. At the end of the film, his department head said, this is one of the greatest kids that's ever worked for me. I'm taking him on our next film. He's getting in the union. And he went from $12 an hour to $42 an hour. And now, not only is he in the union making $150,000 a year, his four brothers are all in camera, prop, set dressing, all of them. They just bought their family a house. They've lifted the entire family out of poverty. And so I kind of lived that dual life. All from one Saturday morning. That shocked the conscience. You know, it seems to me that the movie Just Mercy was designed to do exactly that. It was to give us a feeling of your Saturday morning. I learned a few lessons and, and I kind of came into this whole criminal justice stuff fairly ignorant and just learned along the way. One of the lessons I learned is when you show people's humanity, even if they committed a horrible crime, if you treated them with love and respect, if you believed in their ability to change and transform, if you supported that, if you mentored that, and you show people's humanity, no matter where people come into this issue, they, they change. Whether they come from law enforcement, whether they're a victim of crime themselves, whether they're a Republican, they're a fiscal conservative, an evangelical, whatever, whatever it is, when it becomes a human thing and you lose all the rhetoric, then people change. When I, anyone I brought into prison, came out a different person, no matter what their political beliefs or belief of this issue was. Um, so one, one, I realized that humanizing was the key to all of this. Two, I had met somebody that was involved in the marriage equality movement. And when I asked him, what were the most game-changing moments that allowed you to go from illegal in every state to legal in every state, he looked at me without missing a beat and said, will and grace. That it was Will and Grace, Modern Family, Glee, Ellen DeGeneres, Brokeback Mountain Milk, that basically over a decade humanized gay couples. And if people didn't fully change um, their opinion of it, they at least softened their opposition, which allowed them to gave them the room to, to, to get to where they got. And I realized that we have the power and the pedestal, but also the responsibility in this business, I mean, this business can harm culture if, you, if you're not careful, right? But I also believe that we have the ability to really change culture. And we have the ability to tell stories that create deep empathy, that change the way people think. 
And I can't bring everyone into juvenile hall on a Saturday morning. I can't bring everyone into prison, but they can go see Just Mercy and see an incredibly human story of an innocent man on death row, which again, how's that partisan, right? Who on the planet would want an innocent person to be in prison or to be executed, right? And so that's something that everyone can be brought in with and be relate to. But as my hero, Brian Stevenson always says, um, mercy's not just for the innocent. When you see the film, you also meet Herbert, right? Who committed a horrible crime. But even with the horrible crime, was returning from war with PTSD, and went untreated, as we hear every day with our veterans, you saw in the film how deeply remorseful Herbert was for what happened. And so, spoiler alert, when you have his execution, we had people on our test screenings really change everything that their beliefs in, this, in the system and how they felt about the system, not just from the story of Walter, but also from the story of Herbert, right? And to me, so many of the people I work with were not innocent. Some were, and that's a horrible tragedy, tragedy but 99% of the people I work with committed the crime. But I truly believe that that shouldn't define them. That one moment, that one worst decision shouldn't define them for the rest of their life. How did you come about Brian's book and how did that blossom into a film? First, before the book, I, Brian was my hero long before he wrote the book. Um, I knew of his works, the work I was doing in the How'd prisons. How'd you find out about him? We actually spoke together in a backyard in Los Angeles involving one of the propositions around the death penalty in California. And so we spoke at the same night. And obviously when you hear Brian speak for the first time, you realize you're like in the presence of something absolutely incredible and beautiful. So we kept in touch after that. And then when he wrote the book, I read the book. Then the book ended up at Starbucks. So I picked up a bunch of copies and started handing them out in juvenile hall and in prisons and sending them to people who I thought needed to hear the story. And then I ended up buying hundreds and made it a lesson in my class. So I was very well acquainted with the book. Um, I will take no credit for standing the film up. We were just starting our film and television media company, One Community, and Gil Netter, uh, and Michael B. Jordan had already partnered and came in kind of at the ground floor and started the process. It was at a, a different studio and then it, it ended up at Warner Brothers. When we were coming on, they were bringing Jamie Foxx on through Michael's relationship with Jamie. And so the project was already happening. Because of my background and passion, it was an ideal first project for us to invest in as a company and to also support in a huge philanthropic campaign that one community partnered with our sister organization, uh, a nonprofit organization called Good Films Impact, uh, to run a campaign called Represent Justice. And that's how we came into it. It was, and still is, and it's still going, one of the best experiences of my life. Were you on set or did you wait till it was done and then see a screening? How involved were you? I, we came in before it started production but really our company is really built around empowering artists. It's not our job when you have Michael B. Jordan and Brian Stevenson and uh, Jamie Foxx and Brie Larson and a director as incredible as Destin Cretton and Gil Netter is producing it. Our job is just be there to support. And our job is really to drive impact. 
And I think all our relationship with everybody from Warner Brothers, the studio who was our partner on this, to all the actors, filmmakers, et cetera, was to add a layer of kind of depth in this that, that we're gonna be using this film and all of its messages and all the empathy to change lives, change communities, change laws, change, create a system that's really built around justice and mercy. Have there been any changes thus far? I realize the movie has just come out, but after you walk out, you are changed. I just don't know if that allows changes to be made immediately. The, the part of our campaign, our impact campaign around Just Mercy that I think is different than what's been done in the past is that we started it long before the movie came out and it continues for another six months or more. In the fall, we had incredible moments. We screened for a large handful of governors, one by one, privately, and when the lights came up, and I will say that 90% of the governors we screened for were in tears at the end of the film, had conversations about policy change, and have had consistent follow-up with those governors of those states since then, Republican governors, Democrat governors, and we have much more of that upcoming. So that's just getting started, and we're now on the second phase of the policy change and the actual legislation that will come from those screenings. We have done a lot with really believing that changing culture is key and, and who are some of the biggest cultural influencers. So we partnered with the NBA um, and screened for probably 15 to 20 NBA teams um, as well as NFL teams and created an initiative called Play for Justice where once a team saw Just Mercy if they wanted to take the next step, Brian Stevenson always uses the word proximity, right? To get proximate to human suffering, to get proximate to those who are in jails and prisons. We were able to, with the Sacramento Kings and the Milwaukee Bucks and the Lakers, and now many more teams upcoming, do enormous events inside prisons where some of the top players in the NBA and teams would come in, play basketball with the men and soon to be women inside and have deep conversations, roundtables, mentoring, and now creating long-term relationships between the Sacramento Kings and Folsom Prison, between the Bucks and the rape prison in, in Milwaukee, uh, with the Lakers and the local juvenile justice facility, and really seeing, we did an incredible event with the Bucks where Giannis, the MVP of the NBA, and six of his fellow players and the coach and the governor of Wisconsin and the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin came out to play basketball with men inside a prison incarcerated. Um, and it was one of the most unbelievable experiences. And now having the Bucks, the number one team in the NBA, with the number one player in the NBA, saying publicly that this is their number one issue, that they're getting behind as an organization, that the players are getting behind as individuals, is enormous. And what we're looking at in the next six months are focusing on policy changes, our local partners. This is, not, this is nothing that we're doing ourselves. Our local partners are doing a lot of the legislative and the policy change. Culture change with a lot of the different influencers and folks that we're working with. Um, we're doing, gonna be doing screenings inside prisons with community members 
with church groups, with legislators, with wow, governors. That would be wild. Where they're watching the film it's, together and engaging in, in conversation. So that culture change component, we have a huge philanthropic piece of what we're doing where we are re-granting millions of dollars to local community groups that are doing criminal justice work and re-entry work on the ground. Um, and then we have a huge kind of data and analytics piece where we are tracking the impact that we actually make by the end of this campaign. Well, that's the amazing thing about, or one of the amazing things about the movie, where you see Brian, after he graduates from Harvard, driving down from his childhood home in Delaware. He's alone and uh, can't even get an office at first, won't rent an office when they understand what he's down to do. And you slowly see, oh, they got a house. They're putting a sign up. Then a few minutes later in the movie, you see the house has a library filled with legal books. And then a few minutes later, you're saying, oh, we've added an employee. And at the end of the film, you see like a real life picture of Brian with like almost an auditorium of people surrounding him. And that kind of testifies to the exponential quality of what you're doing. Do you see a goal line of where this can lead five years, yeah. 10 years? I mean, first, like, I think what we're doing is so much inspired by what Brian did at EJI, and I can take no credit for that other than just like um, being totally in awe. The one thing I would say about EJI and the work that they do is they are solely and singularly focused on their clients that are sitting in prison. And they walk the walk. They are lawyers that are in the darkest of environments, battling very ingrained, sometimes very racist systems, and battling these for years and decades to ultimately get relief for their client. That statistic that you see where they have one reversals or um, releases for like 150 plus people, like that's an incredible statistic, especially working in the Deep South. So I can't speak highly, more highly of the work that they do um, and the love I have for them. Um, as we're engaging in this, to me, this is a global initiative. The stories that we're gonna be telling at One Community are not just stories of criminal justice. We're telling stories around all issues of inequality, so prison reform being one of them, but also economic inequality, racial inequality, uh, addiction and mental health issues, immigration issues, education issues, uh, equality for women and girls. So the stories we're gonna tell are gonna be in all issues, around all issues of inequality. As I think about where the goal line is, I think we have to have big, bold goals and I really use that the marriage equality example of where this needs to be. I mean, we need to, right now we're the largest incarcerator in the world. We're the, I work with young people and we're the only country in the world that would sentence a child to die in prison. No other country in the world would do this. And for some reason we're fine doing this, right? Right now in California, our juvenile justice system costs $230,000 to send one kid to prison for one year. 
$230,000, five times what it would cost to send them to Harvard. Wow. And seven out of 10 get out and end up reoffending because they haven't got the services, the mentoring, the job training, the education. So what well, why business- Why does it cost so much money? What business in California could make a product that costs $230,000 that fails seven out of 10 times and not say we are doing something wrong? Forget the cost as well. What about the humanity? What about that these are children? We all know what it takes to turn these lives around. We, it's, very, it's a very simple, it's not easy work, but it's a simple formula. It comes from a lack of love. It comes from hopelessness. It comes from a lack of opportunity and resources. It is evidence-based within the world of corrections, like what we need to do and where we need to invest to help someone turn their lives around. And the kids that I work with, like we're sitting in the office right now doing this podcast in ARC and every day people are walking in here out of jail, prison and juvenile hall, like 95% of the people that walk in these doors don't ever go back to prison. They don't reoffend. It's the anti-recidivism coalition. That really is, what we need to get to. We need to get to a system that's just and fair. Why does no country in the world, if you go anywhere in Europe or Africa or any civilized place, they do the largest sentences 20 years to life. In the United States, we give someone 25 to life, then we stack a 25 to life gun enhancement on it, then we stack a 25 to life. So now we've gotten to 75 to life on one crime. And we feel like we've gotten our punishment, we've gotten our justice, we've got our pound of flesh. But it ignores the, the, the fact that a young person has enormous ability to transform their life. What if 10 years into that sentence, they have a college degree, they're mentoring kids, and all they want to do is come home and be of service, like the ARC members that are surrounding us in this office right now. But they now have 65 more years to do. Or in David Negretti's case, he has 280 more years to do for standing next to someone. That is fundamentally unfair. That has to change nationwide. What happened with David? The story actually has a great ending. Well, it hasn't ended yet, but where we are right now is in a really good place. So- Is this another movie? Could be. We ended up passing a bill, and I say we, all these members of ARC who are formerly incarcerated went to Sacramento for months, and we were able to pass a bill called Senate Bill 260, which gave every Juvenile that got a life sentence, a chance of parole at 15, 20, or 25 years. So David's 300 year to life sentence because of that bill that we authored and sponsored um, was reduced to 25 years to life. We partnered with Human Rights Watch and other organizations and just ran an incredible campaign. I was able to go into prison and tell David, you now go to the parole board in 25 years, not 300 years. Because of David's transformation in prison, all the programs, college classes, everything that he's done, Governor Brown commuted his sentence, and now David goes to the parole board in the next year and uh, has a whole army of people waiting to welcome him home and help him achieve all the success that he wants. Wow. Yeah. It's a good story. Have you been filming any of it or? No. Just... No. You know, I'm just thinking about what you were saying about how the humanization of some, even in, if it's on a big screen or a small screen, it just changes the way we think and what we do. Here's what I'm wondering as I'm saying this, you did hangover. You were making people laugh like every 17 seconds in that movie. Do you get to laugh as much now as you did back then? 
I mean, I laugh all the time and I hang out with a lot of people who did time in prison and have drastically changed their lives and are out here in the community of service and they talk a lot of mess. So I'm actually laughing a lot and I'm smiling a lot because I've now got to combine movie making and storytelling on a big level with impacting lives and changing the way people think. And to me, that's like, that's the best of both worlds. So not only am I laughing, like I'm smiling, like this is, this is beautiful. How important is storytelling in the age of the internet? We've got, you know, somebody directed me to the internet and there was this fact that came about, I'm not sure because I read it on the internet, but it was that of all the content ever created by mankind, womankind, since the dawn of civilization, 90% of it has been produced in the last two years because we've mm. got so many people able to put, push out so much content uh, through the internet. And yet it's like a tornado of information. How do you see storytelling fitting into that? I mean, it gives us the ability to really scale the impact in, a, in an enormous way, right? I mean, we don't just have the storytelling of Just Mercy, an incredible two-hour and 15-minute experience, right? We have tons of other content that we're making and putting out there that are getting millions of views. I mean, the Milwaukee Bucks cut an absolutely beautiful piece after our play for justice in the prison, one of the most beautiful kind of short-form five-minute pieces I've ever seen. But there's also, like, even I was in a prison in Tehachapi with this... French artist named JR, who started off as a graffiti artist and now he's kind of a fine artist, but he does these enormous murals. Um, and we did the largest prison mural that can be seen from like a plane flying in the air uh, on the yard. And I was in there and there were 25 or 30 men that were incarcerated in the prison that participated and had their faces in the mural looking up into the sky from the yard. And we all got, they got to paste their own image themselves, like a football field size photo of them on the concrete yard. I was allowed to bring my phone in. This one guy was holding a little, you know, little tiny orange, nectarine, whatever it was. And he was crying. I asked him about it and he told me a story. I said, can I film this? And he said, yeah. And I filmed it. And he said, I haven't held one of these oranges in 25 years and they grew in my mother's backyard. I haven't touched an orange in 25 years. A year ago, my mom passed away and this orange reminds me of her and that's why I was standing in the middle of this yard crying. I sent that video out and was getting like from the craziest places and the craziest people, like people incredibly moved just by that. And so- How do you get the orange? We brought it in. We also brought in Starbucks and it was their, all of their first time ever having Starbucks, which is beautiful. Like I got to share a Starbucks coffee with 25 men that had never tasted Starbucks. And the funny thing is, when someone gets out of prison, I often take them to Starbucks and sometimes just walking into the place, the smell of it, all the people around and the ability to say like to order off a menu no one, no matter how 
non-institutionalized and transformed they are when you take them into Starbucks and you say, what do you want? 100% of the time they go, oh, I'll have what you're having. I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to make a decision. They haven't made a decision in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, right? No, L read the menu. If you don't know what a grande uh, latte um, macchiato is, I'll explain <laughs> it to you, but like what looks good. But it's like those types of moments, right? Like to be able to tell those moments in short form in 30 seconds and three minutes, and it's the, it's the best. What goes through your mind after Just Mercy? Do you want to do another large film that's going to have a major release, or is it short little bursts that can go out and go viral? All of the above. Um, we're in talks right now on multiple films in multiple wow. places. So, so, you, so you're that, doing what, what you loved? Yeah, I mean, our, our business model is to make four to six films a year, like large feature films, in addition to television. And around all of that, we make content around all of the different campaigns, around Represent Justice for Just Mercy. Um, so this is all gonna be about equality and getting people to see where others are being taken advantage of and, and are disadvantaged. All the films are gonna be like that? Absolutely. Yep. I said to myself, if I'm coming back into the business, I'm coming back on my own terms. And if we're not gonna do something that can change the world, then we're not doing it. We're not doing something just to make money or find a quote unquote piece of business. Like if it can't make an impact, we are not, we're not doing it. So that must set the bar pretty high for like a major film. It sets the bar high, but it's like these things aren't mutually exclusive, right? You can make money and do good in the exact same thing, right? I mean, it's... Um, I'm just thinking, how many amazing stories are there out there? There's a lot. There, there's a lot. But I mean, as you know, the process to getting an amazing story to a great script, to having a great filmmaker and having a great exactly. cast, I mean, it's, yeah. it doesn't often come together like Just Mercy. I mean, hats off to Warner Brothers. It's like most um, studios are not even making films like this anymore, but it was the passion for the material. I, I mean, we ended up, uh, we had 40 members of the Warner Brothers marketing team come to prison with us before they started working on the film. Like they sat in a prison for five hours and got proximate. And you're gonna do this up to six times a year. Makes my head spin, but yes, absolutely. This is absolutely beautiful. I look forward to seeing where this is all gonna go because that exponential quality, you can feel it when you walk out of Just Mercy and maybe part of it is just seeing the number of people that were surrounding Brian in one of the closing shots mm -hmm. and you understood his impact. And if everything becomes exponential the, the impact can just be magnificent. And it also, it's like, it just brings inspiration to everyone that is, is working on it. It's like, we had an incredible event with the Los Angeles Lakers where we brought 12 kids out of a juvenile prison who had not seen the light of day outside of prison walls for years and put them in a van and brought them down to the Lakers training facility. Oh man. Where Michael B. Jordan greeted them, brought them in and gave them each a pair of LeBron shoes, put them in Represent Justice jerseys, went upstairs, had an incredible, deep, powerful conversation with them where like Jeannie Buss, the owner of the Lakers was there and 
Rob Polinka, the GM, and Robert Ori and Meta World Peace, the former players. And then they went down and played basketball. And then the Lakers came out, LeBron, AD, everybody, and just created the best moment. And like at the end of it, like Mike, Michael B looked at me and he's like, this is just one of the most beautiful experiences. But to be able to, in the midst of him traveling the world, marketing the film, be able to have an experience like that. Brie Larson's about to do an event with us at a women's prison. So many of our other actors, Karen Kendrick, who plays Jamie Foxx's wife in the film, came with me on dozens of different trips uh, that were all around making impact. The whole thing is just adds inspiration and a sense of purpose to everything that we're doing. All right, well, you mentioned the Lakers and I just wanted to wrap up with something we were talking about before we turned on the mics, uh, because this is a few days after the passing of Kobe Bryant and you had a similar experience to me uh, in that uh, and anybody who listened to the podcast two weeks uh, past, Kobe Bryant remembered, uh, you'll hear that he just called me out of the blue while I was driving down the street because he was going into storytelling and he wanted to know about the interviewing process. And we started talking and you said he did the same with you. Yeah. I was first like summoned down to his office a couple years ago where he wanted to talk about criminal justice reform. And we literally sat one-on-one -on -one, and he probably asked a hundred questions. Just back to back to back to back to back to back to back. Just like want to knowledge, want to knowledge, want to understand. Tested me on things, twisted me up on things. Like really an incredible conversation. And then we did the same thing about filmmaking and met around filmmaking. Multiple times I would call him to come out to different events that we were doing. Never said no, never asked for a dollar. If it was to like help kids do anything, showed up 100% of the time, always of service, always wanting to help. Um, I asked him if he wanted to see Just Mercy. Uh, he took his daughter to see Just Mercy. We ran out of theater, they went alone. He was blown away by the film. He said, tell me exactly how to help. He ended up buying out a theater in LA for kids in Inglewood and showed up and spoke before the screening um, and had to dart off to his kids' basketball practice. Family was always his priority, um, but he would always take time to help. And he ended up buying out theaters for Just Mercy in Philly and Jersey for people to see his own money. Never asked for a dollar, always gave, fully selfless. It is a tragedy of epic proportions, but I mean, I'm moving forward in continuing his legacy to just be that and continue championing the causes that he cared about and to hugely scale my commitment to the work he was doing. I'm devastated and inspired at the same time. I think a lot of people don't realize that when he retired, his head was in storytelling and educating future generations. He wasn't looking back. He had a huge mission that he wanted to, to accomplish. I think it's hard for a lot of people to understand how deep that was. You had to really sit and talk with him and then watch how he was living his life because he wasn't showing up at a lot of games until his daughter started to play and wanted to go to the games. Yep. And it's, it's beautiful 
that you can follow your passion and educate so many people. This is really not only changing the world now, but down the road, it may be something that allows the world to be like a different place. So thank you. Thanks, Cal. Means a lot. We are really focused on making that impact. And we sit in our staff meetings and we have an incredible team at One Community that are all in this for the right reasons. And every day is, is, is a blessing um, to be able to have these conversations of not just like how to tell great stories, commercial stories, engaging stories, movie star driven stories, award winning stories, but also how to tie every piece of it into making an impact. Well, and so thank you for thank you for giving some love. Well, the one thing that really hits me, it's the most basic thought, uh, but after that helicopter went down, you realize you only got a certain amount of ticks on the clock. What are we here for? That's right. So thank you for being here. Thank you, brother. <laughs> All right, cheers. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss for taking me to all these new places when he nudged me to start this podcast. Also want to thank Joe Altamar for a big question he sent me in the email this week. You know, we've only corresponded by email. Never heard his actual voice. So I don't know. Maybe his name is Joe Altamare. Or maybe it's Joe Altamar. We'll find out. But anyway, here's the setup to his question. Callie wrote, I've recently started trying to interview a lot of the top performers at my company as a way to network and learn some of their tips and success stories. But we're not allowed to use recording devices at my company, so the only tool I have is pen and paper. It seems like jotting notes down in a fury trying to keep up with what they're saying takes away from me being able to pay attention in the moment. And sometimes it's a mild distraction for the person I'm interviewing. Any tips? Absolutely, Joe. Absolutely. Now, obviously, while I'm doing a podcast, the conversation is being recorded, so I don't have to take any notes. And I relied on my recorder when I did interviews over decades for Esquire magazine. I started in the days of microcassette recorders that weren't completely reliable. The tape could run out when you didn't even know it during your conversation, or it could snap when it was rewinding. So I always advised young interviewers to bring two recorders into a session. That way, you didn't have to be constantly looking over at the recorder to make sure the reels were moving, and you could be completely relaxed throughout the interview because you always had a backup. But Joe, your situation is completely different. Here's how I'd go about it. I would enter the meeting with a pen and paper in my pocket, not a sight. I would also reduce the conversation to a single question. That would be, in your case, how did you achieve your greatest success in business? I'd let the subject tell the story, and see if it led to even better stories. I'd be listening as if my ears were as large as satellite dishes. Then, 
when I heard the story that I was looking for, could have been the first, could have been a follow-up story, I'd ask the subject if it was okay to go over it again while I asked a few follow-up questions and took a few notes to make sure I got it completely right. This should get you the permission, Joe, to pull out your pen and paper. It will also give you a chance to ask some follow-up questions that might push the subject to go to deeper places than he or she went the first time the story was told. You already know the basics of the story because you've heard it before, so you don't need to be frantically taking notes. You just need to be putting down important details. If one of your follow-up questions can make the subject think about the story in a new light, the subject just might be grateful for your attention. And they'll probably go out of their way to help you find the very best in their story. And after that's done, and the two of you part, that's when it's time to immediately sit down and write the story out so that you don't forget anything. There you have it. Thanks, Joe, for passing on your question. And better yet, why don't you send me your address? Because I think your question merits a sporty goodie. And if you've got a question about asking questions, let me know. And if your question gets included in a podcast, you'll have some sportique threads headed your way. You can always cut to the chase and go to sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com. And use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount. As you can tell, I don't read 20-second advertising spots that are sent over by my sponsor. I live with my sponsors. I'm wearing my sportiques as I speak these words. Thanks for listening. And please, send me photos, like Joe did, of where in the world you listen to big questions. Hey, and a tip on a great restaurant in your hometown would be nice. And you know what? If you'd rate big questions on iTunes, that would be the winning trifecta. Hope we all clink glasses to it down the tracks. Cheers!